WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello again, everybody. Welcome to another edition of City Talk. And I am extremely privileged to welcome a gentleman who has been a part of the Boston sports scene for over 40 years. He is a man who is revered by many, including me, a great writer and a great broadcaster. And he is none other than the eminently qualified Bob Ryan, author of the book Scribe, among others, that is. Bob, it's it's a really great thrill for me to be able to sit down and, and talk to you like this. Well, it's very kind of you to say that, Ken. I'm honored to be part of this program. In your in your book, your first chapter is devoted to Dave Collins. And he decides to announce his retirement. Kind of a two-part question. Were you elated that he picked you? And were you disappointed that a great athlete was going to retire? Yes and yes. Now, the back, the immediate background of that was that it was during the exhibition season of 1980, the second year uh, of the Larry Bird era. Dave had had an excellent season the year before but he was not playing well in the preseason. And in fact, um, it worried me, he was so ineffective uh, in one of the games uh, that I, you know, I was a little concerned about where he was in his career. And, but I wasn't ready, no one was ready for him to abruptly retire and it was abrupt. And I don't know, do you want me to go into the, do you mean to go oh, into sure. the, the, the bare bones details? Uh, All right, yeah. uh, the, the team was in Terre Haute, Indiana, holding up there at the Larry Bird, uh, Boston Hotel. Uh, I'm not sure it had become that yet, but that's what it would become. And the reason was, of course, that uh, they had scheduled uh, exhibition games in the state of Indiana to exploit the, the Larry Bird's background. And, and it was going to be great box office. They had appeared, played in Indianapolis, and were about to play that evening in Evansville against the Bulls. And so um, I had gone to the morning shoot around and had, was back in my hotel room noonish on the phone with Paul Silas, who was a friend uh, and had, but was then with the uh, Seattle Sonics, as you know, and we were talking about this and that, and there was a knock on the door and I answered the door and they're standing in his practice uniform. The number 18 green uniform was Dave Cowens holding in his hand, yellow legal pad papers. And I said, come on in, what's up? I said, I'm talking to Silas, like to talk to him. Oh, sure. So they had a little chat. And then we got done. I said, all right, Dave, what's up? He said, read this. So I start reading it. I said, oh, my God, this is a retirement statement. And I read it. And I said, OK, what, well, what do you want with me? I mean, I, you know, and he said, uh, I'd like to get this in the paper. We still had the Evening Globe then, Ken. We were a long way away from getting rid of the Evening Globe. So we had two newspapers a day. And um, I said, yeah, I can get it in. And he said, well, and also, would you kind of edit it? I forget the exact phraseology. But what he wanted me to do was edit it. And if it needed any any overtly correction of grammar or whatever, well, Dave could write. He, I knew that, and it was a it was quite well written, and it had needed minimal fixing up, if you will. And I said, "Oh, give me about an hour." And he said, "Okay." And as he just as he's leaving, as he he's reaching the door, he turns around and says, "Oh, do you mind if I call Red first? <laughs> <laughs> no, Dave. I that's okay. So here's the gist. Of, here's the conversation. He calls a red secretary was Mary Faraday. He, he calls. Hi, Mary. It's Dave. May I speak to Red? Yeah. Red, it's Dave. Uh, remember what we talked about a couple of nights ago? Well, I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and then that was part A. So I, I, I go over it and, and I uh, send the story in. And I would say, Ken, that it was uh, 85 to 90% Cowens and, and, and uh, 10 to 15% Ryan. I mean, it was well-written. Little paragraphing here and there, a couple of transitions, but basically it needed minimal editing. So um, now it's four o'clock and the team is about to depart for the game uh, about an hour and some and change away in Evansville against the Bulls. Dave gets on the bus to inform the team. They, no, no one knew. There may have been a couple of suspicions I found out later, but no one knew. And the story is, it's been told is that after he gets done uh, announcing the two things happened, he went up to Parrish, who wasn't playing well at all, 
And uh, it was new to the team. He wasn't in shape. He admits it. And uh, told him, you can do the job and words to that effect. And, and he gave a little pep talk. And then ML Carr, who was always the team comedian, uh, said, are you dying? He said, yeah. I said, well, get the F off our bucks. <laughs> so that's part B. But part C is really good. So the team, the bus pulls out. And there is Dave and I are standing here looking at the bus pull out. What's up, Dave? What now? Well, I'm planning on going back to Newport. You know, he's from Newport, Kentucky. Well, a little, little impediment. He didn't have a car. And nor did he have any credit cards on him. This is not uncommon. Well, long story short, I rented the Avis and handed him the keys. And that's how Dave went off to his. Uh... So I always knew once, I, once um, the book materialized, from that moment, I said, I know how this book is beginning. Because who has a story like that? No writer that you're going to meet, Ken. Or, or I've never, that is a singular Bob Ryan experience. And I knew I had to start with that. And of course, the, Dave was one of my all time and is my all time favorite personality character that I've ever covered. Uh, he, was, he was unique from day one. Not the best player. We know the best player was Larry and 1A was John Havlicek. But, but Dave was a, as a combination of, of all, of all to the Hall of Fame player, which he is, um, interesting and energetic and, and crowd-pleasing style and, and, a, and a completely inquisitive, uh, fascinating personality. Uh, he, he, he's, he's, set, he's a part. He's number one. Now, a lot of people will tell you that Bill Russell, including a guy like Tommy Heinsohn, will tell you that they think that Bill Russell is the greatest player, Celtics player of all time. It sounds like you do not agree with that. Is that correct? Oh no, I do agree with that. Uh, I think that uh, Bill Russell is still the, the gold standard here. You 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 cannot ignore. I'm I'm one of the regional presidents of the Bill Russell fan club. No, I just said the best player I covered. Was, oh, okay. Was Larry Bird. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. I, I think I, I that was in parentheses. Ken, you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> I was in parentheses. Uh, okay. The best player I covered was Larry Bird. The next best player I covered was John Havlicek. Um, okay. But um, but Bill Russell, oh, no, no, no. Uh, I bow to no one, yield to no one in my admiration for what he accomplished on and off the court. You know, I had forgotten, and my wife remembered it too, that Bird had at least two injuries in his, in his one hand and still was able to perform the statistics that he did. It's kind of like almost like the Mickey Mantle of basketball because Mickey played his whole career injured. And so did it turned out, and I had forgotten Larry Bird as well. Larry injured his right index finger in the spring of 1978 after the baseball basketball season was over. And he actually did play a little baseball for Indiana State one of those years and got a base hit. But uh, he loved baseball. It was always his first, it was his initial love was baseball until he grew out of that and grew into basketball. But anyway, um, he was playing in a softball game, playing left field. And uh, his, uh, his, and of course, he's a, he's a, he, a right-handed, he, he had the glove on his left hand. He is highly ambidextrous, uh, but as you know, he's shot right-handed, but he writes neats left-handed. And in this case, he was going to play baseball right-handed. And so the glove was on his left hand and the line drive was hit by, of all people, his brother. And Larry being an unorthodox and very orthodox player, as you might imagine, didn't, he, he wanted to close, you know, make the catch by, uh, securing the ball with this open hand as we, you know, not being a one-handed showboat catch and the ball hit smashed into his finger and did a real number on his right index finger. That's his shooting hand. And the operation was pretty much botched that fixed it. And when he arrived as a rookie with the Boston Celtics, his right index finger was not the same as it had been in his last basketball game with Indiana State uh, months earlier. And he's played his entire NBA career and did everything that we saw him do with a disjointed, swollen, uh, out of whack right index finger. And he told me early on, he's never the shooter he was in college that he was in the NBA. And you imagine that. And that was A. And then B, in uh, the 1986 uh, Bulls series, he got his left pinky, his right pinky, excuse me, uh, hyperextended caught in a jersey and uh, early on and that was never healed that never really came back to where it was so you are absolutely correct he played the last six or years of his career 
with 40% of his shooting hand impaired. Wow. Can you imagine what it would have been like if it was 100%? No. I mean, look at what he did. <laughs> we, we saw this. And, you know, and, and so that just adds to the legend. There's the, the, the Larry Bird story, it, it would make good fiction, but it's all true. You know, it, it bothers me about Bill Russell. <laughs> I mean, this is a great sports town and everything else, but some of the treatment that he got was was terrible. And I read, and I can't remember the name of the author, but there was a gentleman that wrote a book it's called The Last Pass from uh, Bob Cousy to Bill Russell. And um, there's a quote in there by Russell. And he said, quote, I don't play for Boston. I play for the Celtics. Bill Russell, uh, the name of the book is The Last Pass, Gary Pomerantz. It's a that's it. Book. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, yep. It is a, a it, it, Cousy bears his soul as in, in his classic Gallic introspective way. He's Cousy is a very emotional man. And and this was Cousy's apologia to uh, Bill Russell for not doing more to smooth his way, Russell's way into Boston society and into the hearts of the Boston fans and they're not being more sensitive to what he was going through as a black man in a, in a very different Boston than we know today, back in the mid fifties. And um, it could be Cousy beating himself up probably unnecessarily, but classically. And uh, uh, Gary, Cousy didn't go to Gary Pomerantz and uh, Gary Pomerantz went to him and Cousy really has nothing to do with the sales of the book or anything else. It's by Gary Pomerantz's story and Cousy willfully and happily cooperated with it, but it, it's all true. Um, and he, Russell, Russell had a very, very uh, tenuous, uh, tenuous uh, uh, life in Boston. Uh, someone broke into his house in Reading and did smear on his wall. It's a, that's not, that's not fiction. Uh, and he, he uh, reacted in a stoic way and, and, you know, didn't uh, acknowledge people. We know he didn't sign autographs as a rule, et cetera, et cetera. He handled it in a different way. Everybody's a different individual than Sam Jones handled Boston or that Casey Jones handled Boston. He handled it as Satch Sanders handled Boston. Uh, he handled it his way. And it took a long, long time before he would feel really comfortable here. And really, the city didn't make any amend the real amends to him until 1999 when they had that wonderful ceremony at, at uh, the Boston Garden. Uh, that was uh, a, a great tribute to Bill. And of course, we have the statue now on City Hall Plaza. And he softened up, uh, but um, still, how can you erase those memories? You cannot. It, it's funny because in one part of your book, you talk about how much you love the old Boston Garden and then talk about a game that was played in 97 degree temperatures. How can you love a building like that? That's why you love it. It was, <laughs> it's part of the fun. Of course, that's the famous game four in 1984. That Friday night, we were in the midst of a, a heat wave of, of, you know, a rare, well, today we wouldn't blink an eye with climate change, but in 1984, having 90 degree weather in uh, the last weekend, or excuse me, the first week of June uh, was, was a, a rare, a rarity. The background of that story, Ken, is that uh, the day before, I had traveled back, game four, five, excuse me, not game four. I had traveled back from Los Angeles on the Lakers plane. Everybody was flying commercial then. Nobody was flying. Only the, only the, the Pistons eventually started flying uh, charter. Everybody was flying commercial. And I happened to fly back on the plane with the Lakers rather than the one that the Celtics had been on. So I got to Logan at Terminal C, and it was this mad scene right out of the movie, The Year of Living Dangerously, is the way I always put it. Uh, traffic, horns honking, babies crying, uh, all sweaty, unhappy people. And, and the, the true state troopers wouldn't let the Lakers bus pull up because of the traffic. And so I see Kareem and Magic getting into the same cab. Now, this is kind of like the president and the vice president flying on Air Force One. You know, <laughs> if anything happened, you know, that would have been. Uh, but they did. And I'm looking at it and I said to myself, and I did say this, Kenny, swear to God, the big fella, this is not what he had in mind. He, he arrived in Boston in, in, a, in, a, in an absolute sour mood. Well, the next night, of course, we have this game. And it is, in fact, 97 degrees Fahrenheit officially when the game starts inside the Boston Garden. And Kenny never at that point had so many people worn so few garments. Women <laughs> were in halter tops. Guys were in shorts and T-shirts. 
it was never, it was the fewest amount of clothing ever seen in the Boston Garden that night. And the game starts and, and the Lakers are sucking wind and, and they've got oxygen down there, uh, tank and, and ML has got a little battery operated dollar and a half fan he found somewhere and he's walking up and down, waving it in front of the, his own team. And the game proceeds and the Lakers don't want to be there. Kareem, God knows, did not want to be there. And Larry Bird, long story short, says, what the hell? This is nothing. And goes off for 34 points, 17 rebounds, and shoots 15 for 20 from the floor. And the Celtics win the pivotal game five. And after the game, Barrett, Larry's response to all the inquiries was, hell, it's hotter miss back home in French Lick in the summer. And, <laughs> and honest to God, it, it is the quintessential bird mind over matter moment. It's one of my handful of favorite bird games. And, and, and it's one that speaks to Larry Bird the way, you know, the, the, the uh, famous game that from Michael Jordan when he overcame the flu and, and beat the Jazz speaks to him and his ability to overcome his mind over matter. And, and, uh, but this is Larry's ultimate triumph in that regard. And, and uh, it, it, it was a memorable night. And uh, I, 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 for me, you know, I didn't mind. I mean, hell, it, was, it was hot, but it was fun. I knew so, it was, the fans made it into a happening, Ken. The fans <laughs> knew what was going on. The fans were a true six man that night. And and the Lakers just had they had nobody wanted to be there and 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 Larry and the, made sure the fans got into it and they got into it. Now I I don't remember the game, but I remember on a Monday morning, somebody told me the the front page of the Boston Globe all it said was, "Now that was a Larry Bird game." Had quite a headline to put in the front page. Yeah, of the I don't know paper. which game they might be referring to. I know which one I would. I think his finest game all around. Uh, was game six in 86 against the against the Rockets. And I say that because he was omnipresent on defense as well as offense. He was like, he smelled out plays. He was like a, a linebacker or, or a great cornerback. Uh, he smelled out plays. He seemed to be, he was ubiquitous. And that's the way it was described. Uh, Jim Peterson of the, like I said, it was like he was everywhere. It's like one man beat five. And he even got a jump ball off of Olajuwon. And uh, he can't outjump Lebajuan. Well, he must have stolen the tap, but he did. And, and he got the ball. I mean, and, and then, of course, that's the game where he had the famous, uh, uh, this is Larry Bird showing off. He, he gets the ball and he dribbles past traffic incoming in the right-hand in the corner from, uh, and, and gets to the deep corner behind the three-point line, turns around and shoots the ball. And I mean, he dribbled his way like fast through traffic to get there and then turned around and hit the three-pointer. And it was a ceremonial, you know, the, uh, the game was long since over. But to me, that was his greatest uh, game. But he had so many. I mean, he had the famous game with the, with the ambidexterity game in Portland when he had the, not, contrary to popular opinion and myth, he did not shoot left-handed all night long. He only had 11 left-hand baskets and 10 right-hand baskets. So let's not exaggerate. But, um, <laughs> you know, not 21 left-hand baskets. But there was that game. There were so many, obviously. And uh, but but my, my the two that I would put right at the head of the class are the ones I just mentioned. You love all sports, but it's interesting that one of them that you love is golf. I couldn't believe that. <laughs> really? Well, I love the question was and I get that I used to get the question when I was active. What's your favorite sport to cover? And his favorite sport, uh, not my favorite sport, which is baseball followed closely by basketball or depending on the season, basketball followed closely by baseball. <laughs> The, the famous, uh, uh, the, the, I said golf is my favorite sport to cover. And the reason is that, A, I like it. If I didn't like it at all, you know, that, yeah. that, that would be, I like it very much. And I enjoyed my association with, with golf, uh, which, which started basically in 1997 and continued until 2012. But it's because it's the one sport the TV can't, pardon my French, f up, uh, it, um, because it has to be played in the daylight which means you don't have onerous deadline situations. The only day you have a deadline problem is Saturday because of the early deadline on the Saturday, Sunday paper. You have to write twice on Saturday if you're covering golf. You got to write for the first edition then you got to write afterward. But for Thursday, the rest of the week, you don't have an onerous deadline. You, 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 you can write to what you really want to write without, without compromise. And, and, and I enjoyed it. I, I think it's a good writing vehicle, golf. So the, my answer to my favorite sport to cover was golf. Another thing that surprised me is your favorite ballpark. A oh. lot of people will tell you it's Fenway, but you like Tiger Stadium. I love it. The seating, it, it, it was remarkable. Now, it was built the same year as, as uh, Fenway. 
it was originally called the Bennett Field, Lavin Field, and then it was T Briggs Stadium, and then it became Tiger Stadium. It yep. was built in 1912, a month, weeks apart from the, when the Red Sox uh, opened up in Fenway. It it had an incredible proximity to the field. I, I at, at one point, Ken, in the late 80s, I had been to every baseball park, every major league park. I have not now because of the influx of new stadia in the last decade or so, and I, and I don't get around anymore. But uh, I had been to every park. And I've been over 50 or 60 minor league parks. I've seen been to a lot of baseball parks. And this is the best to see the game. The, the, the best seat you could ever have in baseball, in my, for me, was upper deck, first row, Tiger Stadium. And uh, one, there was a night uh, one, when I, I, I did this one time when I was in Detroit for a, a series. I, I said, I'm going to sit as, in as many different locations as I can in this ballpark to see what it's like. And I started out in the bleachers which are 440 feet away. Uh, the, the, the census, the dead center was 440. And I, I, you had a great view of the action. It felt closer than, it just somehow felt closer than, it, than our bleachers or any other bleachers. I then moved around uh, in a uh, counterclockwise manner, uh, finally ending up down the uh, uh, right field line. But I moved around the ballpark and I sat in seven seats, different seats in nine innings and, you know, loved them all. And one of the great views was at the right field foul pole uh, sitting there, I saw sitting in a seat right at the foul pole, 325 feet to right, it was 340 to left, 325 to right. And you know, that's pretty close. And wow, it just, so when in 1999, Ken, uh, when they were closing the ballpark, uh, I, I took my wife who loves to do this kind of stuff, thank God, you gotta marry the right person <laughs> actually. And uh, this wasn't the first time we went on a ballpark tourist vacation. We went to Detroit, I got tickets, of course, and said to them, I want the best possible upper deck, deck seats you can give me, as lowest one you can give me. And they gave me seats in the first row of, of the real section. There's like an overhang section, like, and then at first base. And we had a three-game series. And it happened to be against the Red Sox, which I really didn't want because I wanted to see somebody else. You know, I, I was still covering the Red Sox. I didn't need to see yeah. them again. Well, and I trot Nixon went out and hit three home runs. So, you know, we got to do It was fine. But you could, I'm not making this up, you could hear voices down at first base, the voice of the first baseman, the first base coach, the umpire, and any potential base run, potential base runner. That's how close you were. That's how, and the sound carry. Uh, and I remember, you know, and, and this is my only time I can relate to the following, which many people always cite as their great epiphany moment uh, as a child, but me, it took place in, in adult, in adult uh, as an adult. People often say, about their first trip to the ballpark, which they remember. They went with dad or Uncle Ken or Uncle Dave or, or Grandpa Harry or, or whatever. And they walk into the ballpark at ages six, seven, eight, nine, whatever it was. And they remember the green the grass and the greenness and, the, you know, and they're all there. Well, I don't remember any of that because I went to so many, my whole life was going to ball games thanks to my father's jobs. And I don't remember the first time I went anywhere because I was always going there. Uh, so I had no epiphany moment because I started going to ballparks probably when I was one year old, you know, don't know what's going on. So anyway, in 1972, the Celtics and Bruins are both opening in Detroit simultaneously. The Celtics at Kobo and Arena and the Bruins at the Olympia. And, and um, it just so happened it was the uh, ALCS between Tigers and A's. A's hadn't won a championship yet. This is the first year since 72. It's, and I believe it's game four. And uh, yeah, they, in addition to our regular people who were there, it was Cliff Keene and uh, Harold Kayser and Ray Fitzgerald or whatever, uh, Fran Rosa, who was covering the Bruins, and I, who was covering the Celtics, were dispatched to write sidebar stories at that game. So we had a five different, four or five people from the Boston Globe were at that playoff game. And it was my first visit to Tiger Stadium. And I walk in. And Tiger Stadium in those days was the greenest thing I had ever seen. All, you know, the, all the seats, 50,000 seats were green. Uh, poles were green. Of course, the grass, green grass. I, and it was overwhelming to me. I mean, I, was, I thought it was the coolest sight. Uh, and that was my adult epiphany moment with a ballpark. And it was for, for Tiger Stadium. I fell in love with Tiger Stadium at that moment. And I spent many, many a game there, including one of my favorite baseball games ever, which is the immortal game on the 25th of September, 1977, the last Red Sox road game of the year when Reggie Cleveland pitched a complete game 18 hitter. 
all the, I love all those names. Now you mentioned some great names and there are names that you mentioned in the book as far as sports editors and stuff is concerned with the new breed of people that are there. And I ask you this because you're still writing once in a while for the globe. Is it tougher now to write articles and columns than it was when you were there? It, it, once I sit to write, the writing is the writing. I know I'm, I don't find I don't have any more difficult. It's, it's about topic, my subject matter. Uh, I, I need to stay out of the way of the real people, you know, and in a sense. Uh, so I often have, you know, I often confer to make sure if I choose something that it won't, it, you know, be um, duplication or con no, I'm not worried about contradiction so much, but duplication in some way. Uh, and I just saw, and you know, it's just, I don't travel anymore. This is all armchair stuff. This is all writing from your, your rear end, you know. Uh, um, and so it's observation, it's punditry strictly. I, I don't, as a rule, um, interview people or anything, you know, sometimes a little bit, but anyway, so it, that's all, it's a matter of choosing topics and, um, but, but not the writing itself. The writing hasn't changed. All right, um, when we air this, the game will have been played. But there's a guy named Tom Brady <laughs> who has gotten a lot of ink in the last couple of years. Go, go back a little bit. Did you have a feeling like I did that Brady was going to be gone before it happened? I was so ambivalent in terms of making up my mind about the prediction, you know, um, I, I was vaguely aware that it wasn't all that there were never going to be Christmas cards post career between sent by back and forth between Brady and Belichick. I was pretty much aware that, you know, it wasn't kumbaya uh, off the uh, field or away from the meeting room or, or other than that, there, there was something was going on. I was, I was somewhat aware of that, but I still, it's hard to imagine that he would really want to leave here after the way things had gone for 20 years and that he would have, I, 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 so I was, I guess I have to say by a 55, 45, you know, plurality, uh, I was not surprised, but there was a part of me that, that couldn't believe it was actually going to happen. Now, um, two things, one, and I've, I've been citing this for a couple of years to people before he made the decision, but, uh, and, and, and to me, it, it tells you, told us all we needed to know right there. The famous interview with Jim Gray, Whenever that was, Ken, yeah, it was this 2018, I think it was 18, 19, when he was asked for this, in so many ways, are you, are you sufficiently appreciated in Foxborough, i.e., by you know who? And the answer he gave was, I plead the fifth. He wasn't smiling. That wasn't a, that wasn't an all shucks, you know, I'm not kidding. No, take it at face value. You have to take it at face value now. We, that told us right there that he was quite open to suggestion about playing somewhere else. We should have taken the you know, played taking that seriously. That's number one. Number two, I just got through reading Jeff Benedict's new book, The Dynasty. This is not to be confused with the book I have not read, or nor has anyone else yet, because it's not out yet. Seth Wickersham's much discussed book of the last two days. Uh, you know, uh, I'd rather be feared or whatever it is, something like that. But the one everybody's talking about with all the re revelatory stuff that uh, and all the bombshell stuff. Um, but I did read Jeff Benedict's book, and uh, if you read that book. You, you come with it. Well, I know why he left. I can see why you can see now it all, it all makes sense that, uh, that he really didn't feel that daddy, he couldn't get daddy's unbridled, un, unadorned, uh, 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 total approval uh, the way we thought he would get it. Apparently there was some stuff, you know, there were complaints. We, he, he wanted to be praised a little more by daddy than he ever was. Uh, and uh, wow, you know, but it, Bill, so in the end, here's, I'll just add this before I get off the soapbox for a minute. Um, 10 years ago or more, didn't we all wonder what we all saw how Belichick operated, starting with Laurie Malloy. That was our first jolt. When the Laurie Malloy thing happened, he was released just before the, or, or traded just because be traded just before the opening of the season. Wow, that was a jolt. And then we saw others. We saw Seymour. We saw others. And, and we realized how he operates, that it's the old branch Ricky get rid of a guy a year too soon, rather than a year too early, et cetera, et cetera, without any shred of sentiment. Now, about 10 years ago, you know, well into the, the championship era, you know, you start to think, will he make an exception for number 12? Will number 12 be granted the one exception uh, that, that uh, of gratitude and sentimentality that would, that would also go into the decision, and, and he won't be treated the way anybody else is treated? And frankly, we saw in the end, 
the answer was no, he wouldn't make that exception. Could Robert Kraft have overruled it and done yes. something about it? Robert Kraft is put in a very difficult position because I guess he assumed that at some point, Belichick would outlast Brady. <laughs> Although we're not certain about that now. Brady, yeah. I'm not going to laugh at him wanting to play to his 50. I'm not going to laugh because I certainly laughed when he said 45. I'm not going to laugh any longer. And Belichick's 69. And, and you know, I don't know. We'll see what happens at, uh, and how he likes not winning uh, another year. Well, anyway, um, you, that's the other thing about this book was fascinating. It all starts with, with Jeff Benedict featuring Robert Kraft because after all, he, he created this whole thing. He, he, you know, machinations to get Belichick and, and his belief in Belichick from the time he first met him, when he first came here as an assistant under Parcells and, and his belief in Belichick and, and, and his steadfast desire to get Belichick, not to mention, you know, he became so close to, to uh, Tom. Uh, Tom became the, uh, another surrogate son, a, a surrogate son. They go along with the real sons. And uh, yeah, uh, but I think in, he, he, I think he could have prevented it, but he didn't want to ruffle Bill. You know, he wanted Bill to, he gave Bill the power and he still has, and Bill we trust. And, and um, you know, I, but I think if he put his foot down it, and, and then, he, and that would have caused a, I don't know whether him or me or whether Belichick would have, you know, we don't know how he would have reacted, but it wouldn't have been very happy about it. You made an interesting comment to me that I wish you would repeat. And that is that if you're ever going to talk to Bill Belichick, it's best to do it on a Friday before oh, yeah. a football game. Well, people only people on the outside, I you know, the non-New Englanders, the non uh, uh, see Bill Belichick after uh, they see clips from Bill Belichick after a football game has been played. And if it's a loss, of course, he's taciturn. He's he's, he's absolutely morose and, and and not good. If it's a win, he's not. It's only degrees better. You know, it's always going to be about we were good on all three phases in all three phases, or we were bad in all three phases, or or blah blah blah. You know, and and it's we got to coach better, we got to play better. It's all bland stuff, nothing nothing specific, and it's delivered often with a really flip uh, and in a dismissive tone. That's Sunday. He's and he gets better day by day. And I, I, I observed this about, you know, several years ago. And then by Friday, he's a raconteur. And remember, you have to understand, Bill Belichick is a bright man who was chosen as his life's work, football. He's a, he's, he's a football lifer who's son of a football lifer. And he's, this, is, this is what he was meant to do in his mind. He loved, he could be, you know, obviously could have been a highly successful businessman, whatever you want to do. But all right. He loves football. And he likes sharing his knowledge of football. He loves it. He loves to just talk, and, and, and he's willing to, just to, to talk. He knows more. I will state categorically that he has to be the single most football knowledgeable person who was ever coached in the National Football League. And by that, I mean not just the X's and O's of football. I'm talking about history. I'm talking about uh, uh, personalities. He knows, I say he knows more about Paul Brown than Mike Brown does. He, he's got a collection of football books, supposedly, that uh, is uh, unrivaled in, in private life. He... He loves sharing his knowledge. He'll, and, you know, whether you're talking about long snappers or, or left-footed punters or, or, or uh, uh, short linebackers or, or uh, defensive tackles with short arms or, or, or the difference between this cornerback and that cornerback. And he loves and – he'll, and he'll do hypotheticals on Friday. And I always said, you know, you, if you see him then, he's a different guy. Well, lo and behold, John Powers put together a book called – I wrote about it a couple years ago book Fridays with Bill he got the transcripts uh and and put together an entire book and the only thing that wasn't in there I kidded John because he once did talk about why uh, many times about why he wanted a like left-footed punters which he no longer has but he did for years as you know and and uh, that's there's no discourse in there on left-footed punters that was the only thing that disappointed me but uh so he's much better on Friday yeah <laughs> now we were both born believe it or not in the same year Okay. 19, 1946. I always used to kid Mickey Vernon, <laughs> who won the batting championship that year. And I'd always say, well, I wonder who would have gotten the bigger headline, you winning the championship or me being born. But, <laughs> but when I came to Boston, sports talk shows were just getting started. Now they're around 24 hours a day, seven days a week. As a member of the audience, you think it's too much? Well, here's, let me just inform people, and I'm sure you know this. 
in, the, in year 2021, the, the commercial radio format with the most, uh, the, the biggest num number of, of, of affiliates is sports talk radio. It has overtaken country as the number one format for, for radio in America. Uh, every, and every municipality has, of any substance, has sports talk and some have, as we, and we're one of the many, have more than one full time. Uh, it, it is too much. I, I you know it, it's it's the nature of it. I just think that I have some feelings about the general nature of it. And be care, you always have to be careful when you generalize because because nothing's ever hundred percent true. But but uh, you know the, the, there's certain things that it's, it's nature of conversation. I think the blame game is a, a, a which I hate playing is 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 a big thing. It is very endemic to sports talk radio. Uh, anyway anyway, is it too much? Oh, I guess not. I mean, people obviously, if it's the number one format in America, people love it, and and um, that that uh, that is that, that that's uh, unarguable. That's that's just that's the gospel truth. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, um, well, you, you talk about those days. Yeah, I mean, I you know, we all remember when um, all we had was uh, whatever channel, whatever WBZ provided, Guy Manila, a, a yep. one show a day for for two hours or two and a half hours. At, at six o'clock, and and we had, of course, the thing I grew up in Boston on, and starting in 1964 when I arrived here, was um, the Great Voice of Sports on on WHDH, and on, at 8:50 on Saturday nights at 6:30. I can, I mean, that's what you were when you're getting ready to go out. That's what you listen to. You listen to Don Gillis with with Jake Liston and 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 uh, uh, Tim Horgan, and then the, the third person. Uh, for many years was Joe Costanza, who was the oh, Costanza, yeah, right, yep, producer of uh, uh, at, at Channel Five, which had the great archive of sports uh, films. Anyway, uh, and then of course things happen, and, uh, and look where we are now. So, and of course, you know, God knows uh, Upton LaBelle and, and Upton Bell and Bob LaBelle. I used to call him Boblo Boblo Bell. I used to call him Boblo uh, and uh, <laughs> Boblo Bell, you know, B E L L. But you know, God knows, uh, we're friends of mine, and uh, and and. But I, I remember I met Bob when he was up in WGIR in Manchester and he was doing his show and I was up there to speak at, uh, at college and he, and he got me to come into the studio on my way uh, to do my speaking gig. That's where we met uh, up, in, uh, up in Manchester. I don't know about you, but having been born in the same year, I can remember when all World Series games and all-star games were played in the afternoon in the daylight. I'm thoroughly disgusted with games starting at quarter to nine at night that turn out to be great games that I just can't stay up for, stay awake for. You know that um, this is the 50th anniversary this year of the first night game in the 1971 series between the, the Orioles. Oh, Baltimore and, and oh yeah, Baltimore. And Bruce Keeson pitched for the Pirates, as I recall, in that game. But we later pitched for us. And remember, he got, <laughs> when George Bell stormed the mound and used the karate kick, it was on Bruce Keeson. But anyway, <laughs> yeah. I, I digress. Um, Oh, you're so right. I mean, the 50, those of us who grew up in the, in the 50s, you know, the, the World Series meant you rushed home from school and yep. you turned on the TV and you saw those increasing shadows at Yankee Stadium because, of course, the Yankees were in it every year, right? And uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and the leaves blowing around and, and, and the, the wrappers from the hot dogs, Kenny, blowing around on the field, honest to God. And I can still remember that. And um, like Mars, Larson's Perfect Game, the anniversary of which will be on October 8th, 1956, uh, See, I went to a parochial school, and the rules are different. The, 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 the different. The nuns. I had one nun, Sister Mary Gabriella, who I had for three years, third, fourth, and fifth grade. She was a big Dodger fan. So when the World Series came, she put the radio on, and she handed out make do work to to the girls, and and we sat around listening to the game until we got dismissed at two twenty. Jumped on the bus, got home. Of course, the game started at one, and it would be over by three thirty as a rule, right? Two and a half yep. hours. But yep. we knew that. I knew that that Larson had a perfect game going. So when I got home and turned it on, there it was. And I watched the end of it. And, uh, and I said, well, if he's still got a perfect game or no hitter, I'll be watching. Otherwise I'm going to go out and play touch football. That's what you did. <laughs> and so I stuck around and then I went out and played touch football. But, uh, oh no, the World Series and the day game. At the very least, the weekend game should be in daylight. There's no question. Sunday afternoon, absolutely. And I know it'd be up against, the, uh, against football. And that, you, know, I, I, you know what? Just stand up for your product. People who want to watch baseball deserve that afternoon game. So anyway, I totally agree with you. It's uh, uh, the, the game times, uh, you know, and, and coupled with the 
ever increasing length of games, which is one of those topics that we all talk about. It. Oh. It's just like, as I wrote this, it'd be like Mark Twain's weather. We all talk about it, but nobody can do anything about it. You know, they keep saying they're trying, but uh, yeah. it's, it's just not the same. Now you settle some debates or try to anyway, in this book, one is Bobby Orr and Wayne Gretzky. Yep. And the other one is Michael Jordan and LeBron James. Yep. Well, Bobby Orr Gretzky, you know, you're not, um, my simplest thing is this. We all know that Orr transformed the game. It, it, it made defense, uh, the, took the defenseman position and, and made it into an offensive force. The idea, if someone had told you in 1960 that, that a defenseman would come along and score 100 points, I mean, you'd laugh. They just say, you're out of your mind. Well, Bobby, we all know Bobby Orr made it routine and changed everything. Uh, he's the greatest hockey player that's ever lived. Uh, and, and my thing about Gretzky is, I'm trying to think of a good proper analogy in basketball, but I'm trying to think of who would be, uh, you know, a great offensive player, that, but didn't do anything. Not a great offensive player, but, but you know, not really a great defensive player. And there's certain aspects of his game that he didn't have. This, Bobby was, I mean, Glenn Gretzky is the greatest scoring machine in, in NHL history. Nobody, somebody told you once upon a time a guy scored 200 points, you wouldn't believe that either. So I understand that. But here's the other thing. Hockey is a game about hitting and getting hit, and, and Wayne Gretzky didn't either. Nobody hit him, and he never hit. He did what he did, which was phenomenal. He's had the greatest vision, although I don't know if he's any better than the than, than Warriors. Wouldn't you like to see him play together? That'd be the ultimate fantasy. Uh -huh. Talk about that. That wouldn't be fair. You, you could you could play with five instead of you could play with four instead of five. And, you know, and, and, and you, I, I promise you, they would at least win half their games. If, if their teams were, were restricted to playing, you know, that every time they took the ice, they only had four people in that goalie instead of five. I bet they win half their games anyway, if, if, you, if they were on that team. But I would say or was a complete hockey player. And Gretzky was not a complete hockey player. He was a great scoring machine and remains the standard of excellence there. And I wouldn't want to dream of taking it away from him. But if I got to start a, game, a team, I'm one or. <laughs> I remember when the Bruins got Brad Park and Bobby Orr was still here and everybody said, boy, won't it be great if they, when they start to play together. And unfortunately, it didn't <laughs> last very long. No, it didn't, didn't at all. Remember that famous... Um, Welcome to Boston, Pack. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that was it. And I, and I have to admit, you know, I'm not, hockey is not my number one. It's my number four area, if you're, maybe even lower when you get to golf and the area of expertise. But but I am steadfast in my belief that that uh, Bobby Orr remains the greatest hockey player who's ever, ever laced up skates. Now, the other argument is interesting. Um, because, and and, and it, 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 the uh, Jordan and, and LeBron, uh, it comes down to personality and how they each got to be, got to the top of the heap in their respective eras. And my belief, my premise is that Michael Jordan didn't fulfill his appropriate destiny to be the best player and to, and to bring championships until he learned how to share. When he was willing to share, he was willing to trust other players and and part confidence in them that he did trust them. I say the 1997-98 Bobby Orr, excuse me, Michael Jordan, would not have made the passes that he would later make to John Paxson and Steve Kerr to win games and championships. But he was willing to do that. And then and and he and that's number one. And I say that LeBron James didn't win championships until he, with a different personality, was willing to assume the responsibility of being the best player on the floor and then act accordingly. After the debacle in 2011, when he did, and I reluctantly came to that conclusion, shared, shied away from the ball against the Mavericks. And, and after the year before, when I was witness to him, if he didn't quit on that team, he sure didn't get out, put out the effort that was required uh, on the 2010 Cavaliers against the Celtics. Well, I think that Dallas series was an epiphany for him. And all the subsequent things that have happened uh, are because he, he understands how to calibrate things better and how to know when to take over and how to take over. And, 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 and utilize his great skills to the utmost. He wasn't doing that before. That's what I think. Now, interesting thing about the two of them difference is that uh, uh, one uh, you know, grew up in an entirely different atmosphere. You know, Jordan was not an AAU guy. They, he wasn't even part of the deal. Uh, and he was barely known outside the state of North Carolina when, when he went there. And uh, 
LeBron Jordan was on the cover of Sports Illustrated at 15 and is a child in a modern, a modern basketball uh, product of, of the AAU culture and, and of course didn't even go to college. But uh, that's, that's a sub subplot. Now, um, let's talk about the current Boston Red Sox. Um, Mookie Betts left here and went to Los Angeles. Do you think it was all money or do you think part of it might've been racially motivated? Oh, I don't think that, I, I, I wouldn't, I, I see no evidence there's just any, any reason to, to divest yourself of a prominent African-American player in this in the year 2021 when baseball is hungering to find young black athletes to play this game. And, and uh, I, no, I, I think it was all about the money uh, for the, the Red Sox and, and, uh, uh, and that's all. I mean, it was, you know, they thought it was, and I'm, uh, by the way, uh, as we are sitting in the last week of the season, uh, after a slow start this year because of his hip problem, Mookie of late is being Mookie again. Uh, he's going to be a monster in the playoffs. Anyway, uh, I'll always regret, I'll always be un unhappy about uh, his departure. Yeah, me too. And it's surprising when you hear other broadcasters like a John Sterling say right on the air, they should have kept him. Well, you know, it's, it, at that point in time, he's been an MVP. He could have been an MVP twice. He's vying with Mike Trout, who some people believe, and I'm just, I'm just repeating, I am not advocating this premise, but I'm not dismissing it either. But I'm simply saying some people truly believe he's the greatest player of all time. That, and if you factor in all the different modern era differences and advantages and disadvantages of, you know, against the great players of the, of the teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, etc. Some people believe he's the best players ever, that we've ever known. Uh, I'm not ready to embrace that, but I'm not going to unilaterally dismiss it either. Anyway, Mookie Betts was every bit as equal, in, uh, frankly, in, in the last two years he was in Boston. Uh, and um, yeah, uh, I, I can see people saying that, uh, not just mystified as how they could ever let him go. Unless you remember, he's a two-way player. I mean, he's, he's, you know, he just routinely wins gold gloves in right field. He can play center field at a high level. And, and, and he's just, he, he's, he's one of the great base runners, not just, not just fast. He knows how to run base. Remember the last vision we had of him. Remember the last thing he did in the Red Sox uniform was score from first on that, that doubles in a half, if you will, no, in the, well, the glorified single. And, uh, you know, anyway, he's, there's no, there's nothing about his game not to like. Nothing. <laughs> nothing. All right. Alex Cora. Uh, I was surprised after the scandal and everything, even though he won the pennant, I mean, the World Series in 2018 and the Red Sox had a season that I don't think will ever be equaled again. Um, were you surprised that they brought him back or would you rather have seen someone else take the job. I went on so record as welcome, welcoming him back. Uh, um, I'm, I'm just, I just, I, I'm very, I was very disappointed that he was in the forefront of that trash banging incident and, 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 and cheating in, in Houston. Yes. Uh, I think he is sufficiently, I think he is properly remorseful. Uh, I do, um, uh, but um, I'm inclined to like him. I'm going to give him the benefit of doubt. I can see someone who, who, you know, just, just can't forgive him because they thought it was an unforgivable sin and they're not going to forgive him. Um, I'm willing to forgive that sin, um, you know, because I still think they would have won anyway. I mean, I rationalized this away because uh, it was against the Dodgers so, and the Yankees. So how can I not want to, to win? Right. So yep. <laughs> um, I, I like him and admire him. And I think he's an excellent manager. And uh, so I'm, I'm going along with it. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I, I, I did, I, I, I went on record as saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I think it was the, I was very happy when they brought him back. Going back to your book, I was surprised to read about Tommy Heinsohn and that some of the guys didn't like him. I mean, I met him and knew him kind of superficially because he used to come in and see a fellow named Larry Glick, whom you may have heard of uh -huh, from, sure. time, from time to time. And according to, if I'm, if I'm right, I don't want to misquote you, but according to your book, if I remember correctly, a lot of the guys didn't like him and didn't well, get along with him. Now, well, here's the thing. Um, he, the guy who had the biggest problem uh, was Cowens. And uh, I, uh, I, the biggest problem. And uh, he kind of turned Dave off in the 75 uh, series against, uh, against uh, the, the Bullets. 
and and also against uh, Cleveland in, in 76, to the point where he was not even paying attention to what he was saying in a huddle. I got this in very good information. And then he would walk out on the floor and say, okay, what are we running? <laughs> he wasn't listening. Mm -hmm. um, that was, but, you know, John, I, John, who I was friendly with, very friendly with, uh, expressed some misgivings about uh, Tommy in a, and it was a very mixed feeling in, in, in certain part, early part of the seventies. And, um, and he said he was his roommate and he, they, he wanted to be friends, you know, he still was his friend. He want, and, it was different. Tommy was placed in a difficult position in the sense of remember when he was named coach, two things. One, he, he had never coached a thing a day in his life, not so much as a CYO game, you know, a youth league, bitty league, nothing. Never coached a thing in his life. And B, he was coaching a number of guys that he had just played with, you know, he, he, he coaching John Nelly. Uh, uh, he didn't play with Nelson. Nelson, he, he retired a year before Nelson, but he played with John and Satch, uh, Siegfried, who was still there, and he was a, pro he was a problem for, for, for Tommy. Because he was a headstrong guy, um, it, it there were complaints. I was in the middle, you know. I write about the way Tommy was uh, handling JoJo. That was the source of the friction. They thought he was too soft on JoJo. JoJo didn't do certain things. He didn't block out on defense on the boards when there was a switch and they were a switching team. And uh, as opposed to Hambone Williams, who fought guys like hundred pounds heavier than him, you know, tooth and nail. Uh, JoJo was a soft player. He's an elegant, graceful, gliding player. And, but, you know, uh, that didn't, and, and Tommy's defense was, we need his offense. I, I'm going to you know, get the offense straightened away first, and then we'll go do the other stuff. And that didn't sit well with, uh, with John. And I doubt it sit well with, uh, with the Nelly either. And so there was some, they didn't hate him. The other thing is Tommy overcoached at times. And he, he had he, too much talking in practice was one of the complaints. Um, and he tried to change things before and beat the, uh, the uh, uh, opposition to the punch by changing up things before it was necessary. You know, they thought he was trying to overcoach and prove who was the coach at times. And so that was the source of the friction. All right. Um, one of the other things that surprised me, well, yes and no, you spend a chapter on music. And yes. you talk about a guy named Jonathan Schwartz, whom I know about and have heard a little bit on here. But uh, <laughs> he uh, was the Sinatra expert, I think, other than Ron Della Chiesa. But you also talk about how much you love music and the American Songbook in a, in a sports book. Well, it's a, a, a life book. And I, I ran that by, um, you know, the editor. And I explained... Uh, are you, are you okay with this? And my, and my agent, uh, are you okay with this? Uh, this is who I am. And I, this is going to be a book about my life. Uh, music is an integral part of my life. Every day, 365 days a year, and has been since I was a child. I grew up in a house where, thank God, the radio was on all the time. We had a record player with all kinds of different kinds of music, everything from college fight songs to, to Duke Ellington. Uh, you know, the, uh, we, we had all kinds of stuff. Um, I, I love music, and, and uh, I was a child when rock and roll hit. I was a formative, nine, ten years old, when Bill Haley was singing Rock Around the Clock, uh, and Elvis was singing Heartbreak Hotel. That was, I was part of that generation that, was, that be, began with that. In addition to which, we, I watched all these variety shows. Ed Sullivan was a staple in our household, and all these variety singers would come on and sing, and I, I got tuned. I got, in, I got turned on to Sinatra. I got turned on to, to uh, Johnny Mathis, because he was a top he was before um, he, he, as he started out as a, on, on the charts, you know, with wonderful, wonderful and chances are, and it's not for me to say and all that. So he was definitely a top 10 singer. Anyway, I love music. And I was, and I, I was, when you mentioned Ron, uh, Ron, when he was with WGBH doing music America back in the, in the late seventies and early eighties, uh, uh, used to have a thing, a collector's corner. And I sat in and brought my, my, you know, an hour or more work of programming with him uh, uh, four or five different times over those years. It was a great thrill. And most recently, uh, Ken, and then this is, I mean, believe me, this is one of the great thrills of my life, one of the greatest honors I've ever received. It was, it was uh, on Sirius XM on the Sinatra channel, number 71. Um, they have a segment called uh, Playing Favorites. And all these celebrities, actors, uh, performers, singers, I mean, you name them. Uh, and then a lot of other people in other walks of life come in and get an hour's worth and play uh, 
to play some favorite songs. I did this. I talked my way into this. Uh, and and uh, Lou Simon, who was the executive there in charge, uh, went for my pleading and 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 I did it. And uh, I'm, it's one of the greatest thrills of my life to be able to. <laughs> I mean yeah, it. I, I mean, I, and I'm, I'm, I think I did a damn good job. I think of my selection. Are you pleased with the overall broadcasting situation today? Yes, I think that they have to, the, the broadcasters today have to negotiate a little bit of a minefield that the others didn't with the drop-ins. The continuity of their broadcast has been disturbed because of the, the, the commercials, the drop-ins you have to have and stuff. But by and large, I mean, um, you know, we have a tremendous, I think nationwide, I think there's, there's still excellent broadcasters. And I think we in Boston are, Certainly, um, you know, Joe has established himself in Boston as a legend and a, and a Hall of Famer. His, his encyclopedic knowledge of the league at any given point in time is remarkable. Uh, it stays on top of things. And of course, um, Dave, Dave O'Brien is a pro's pro no matter what he does. So in terms of baseball broadcasting and, and, and now, uh, you know, we, we've got good young talent. Um, I, and then, of course, uh, the color man, of, we've had so many good ones. And, you know, the echoes are, you know, all we do respect the jury. I love jury. Uh, but Eck is, Eck is just, you know, he's Eck. There's, no, there's nobody quite like Eck. The two of them together, <laughs> yep. the two of them yep. together are, you know, priceless. It's wonderful. They play off each other so wonderfully. Um, so, yeah. No, I, I know, but I mean, I grew up with the, you know, uh, the, the, the Phillies. How, these, how about this for the trio that you, you, you know, Byram Sam, uh, Gene Kelly, who was six feet eight, and, and Claude Haring. We had they were my three Phillies announcers, and of course, Russ Hodges in New York. And I do yep. remember Scully in Brooklyn with, with the Andre Barouche. And, uh, uh, you know, so, and of course, I, I go back to in the Mets uh, when they came on the air with, the, with uh, Lindsey Nelson, Ralph Kiner, and Bob Murphy, who stayed together. Probably that's got to be the longest trio ever that stayed together any sport, anywhere, anytime, right? Because they were 30 years when they were, the three of them together. Uh, yep, and, they, were, they, they were there until or through 1982 when... Lindsey Nelson left the Mets and he, said, yep. and, and he said, I'm not going to have the same thing happen to me that happened to Mal Allen. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, so I grew Which, up as hating the Yankees. So I, I had an immediate antip antipathy toward Red Allen, well, Mel Allen, because I hated the Yankees. <laughs> you know, uh, and then, but then, of course, he showed up. We would show up on New Year's Day broadcasting the Rose Bowl. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, and the, but I came and to appreciate this... him, you know. I came to appreciate because what I really came to appreciate him was was of course um, uh, the baseball show, you know, the highlight show. Come on, help me, you know. This week in baseball. Yes, yes. When it, when Mel did that, and and yep. Weezy Shapiro was the producer, right? So yeah. So yep. yeah. Well, listen. But, uh, but Mel was perfect guy for that, you know. Yeah, he was. He did a he did a good job. I, Kurt Smith, whom I think you know. I don't know. Um, I read his stuff. He's you know he's he's the guru of. Broadcast. Oh yeah, he he spoke at an alumni banquet. Uh, I got him as a speaker one year, and he said nobody could pack a uh, pack drama into a game better than Mel Allen. That's, well, I grew up about the the, the Valentine blasts and the White Owl wallops. White Owl yep. wallops. Yeah. Oh yeah. You know? <laughs> the best so, battery of them all, baseball and Valentine. Well, October one is an anniversary of a lot of things, and one of them is. Roger Maris's 61st home run. Oh God! Howard, which which won a one nothing game, by the way. Yep. But it did. The Rizzuto gets the call that they play on TV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Holy cow! He did it. The scooter. Yep. What a riot he was. Loved him. I interviewed him when I was in college. As a matter of fact. Hmm. But listen, I I really want to thank you for sitting down and sharing some moments. You are. They should have a statue built for you because you are one of the best. And for me to be able to do this, I still have highlights in my life, believe it or not, at my age and your age. And this certainly is one of them. And I can't thank you enough for doing it. Well, I'm glad we finally hooked up uh, in this manner, Kenny. It's been a lot of fun for me as well. I enjoyed it as always. And that will do it for this edition of City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. 
Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.